0: And a little harder to get up off the ground with each passing year. Good morning. Back to school Sunday. It's Messiah, you're back, yeah? All right. Fantastic. Good to see you all. You know, kids, I was just thinking uh, if you got a Bible, go to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to begin our study of the book of Galatians today. It's going to take us the better part of two semesters. We're just thinking students, kids in particular, you know, when I was young, I had this experience where during college, my college years, the Lord, um, that's when he led me to know that I was called to be a pastor. And I don't know that I would have valued what just happened when I was your age, like if you're young. What I wanna point something out to you is one of those moments where God sort of caused me to recognize something. So when I shared with my grandparents that, that I was pretty clear that God wanted me to become a pastor, I shared that with them thinking, it's not that big a deal. And they just started to cry, I mean, really cry. And I remember thinking like, well, that's interesting. That's an interesting reaction. And they weren't actually praying because I was going to be a pastor. I went home and talked to my dad about it. And I said, dad, it's the weirdest reaction. Grandpa and Grandpat said, they told him I was going to go to seminary, be a pastor. They, they cried. He said, well, Trent, they're not crying because, they, because you're going to be a pastor. They're crying because they've been praying since before you were born that you would walk with the Lord he's like, and what you're sharing with them is that you're saying yes to walk in God's plan for your life. It would be some different plan for somebody else, but for you, this is the plan. And and you said yes to that. And that's what they're crying for because it's precious to them that you would walk with Jesus. That's all they've ever wanted for you. So you'd walk with him and love him. So the thing, kids, I wanna point out to you is that we are praying for you. And that's deeply meaningful. It took me a lot of years to understand why that was meaningful, why that mattered so much. But the prayers of parents and grandparents, what dawned on me was that my life had been shaped by their prayers in ways I never knew or understood. That I was where I was, making the choices I was making. And at at least part of that was due to the fact that I had grandparents getting on their knees and praying for me every day from before the day I came into the world. That's pretty amazing, yeah? So I just want you to know, kids, we are praying for you. We are praying over your lives. We love you. We want you to treasure Jesus. We want you to love his church. We want you to say yes to all that he has for you. And we want you to always know that life is sweeter in his will than it is outside of his will. Always and without exception. That's what we hope you know. But we, you are so loved in this place. So. We are turning to the book of Galatians now. We're gonna study. We've been, this summer, if you weren't with us, we were studying about how to pray for one another. And again, please do keep praying God's word over one another so that we might continue to grow as the church that God's invited us and called us to be. Now, let me share with you that the book of Galatians, the biggest, if I had to summarize the the whole book in one word, it would be freedom. That the book is really about what does it mean to be free? And so that's what I wanna do today. I wanna give us the big picture. I'm gonna try and kind of give you a summary of the book And then over the next two semesters, we're going to come back and just examine line by line, word by word, what does that mean? Uh, And so as you think about this book, if you're going to put it in one word in your mind, I want you to think about what does it mean to live a life that is truly marked by freedom? There's a lot of different ideas around that. In fact, the church I worked at before uh, coming to serve here was in Austin, Texas. And Austin is Everybody calls it the blue dot in the Red Sea. It's a relatively liberal city in the middle of a, a pretty big conservative area. There aren't a lot of people who go to church there, not a lot of people who profess faith in Jesus. And so it is a, it's an interesting place. And we loved living there. We loved serving there, opportunity to tell people about Jesus all the time. Uh, and so it was a great experience. But one of the things, the church I served at was called First Evangelical Free Church. So similar to West Shore Evangelical Free Church, it was called First Evangelical Free Church. And in Austin, you know, evangelical had become a pretty politicized term, which it's not. It's a theological term, but it had become a political term. Uh, And so in Austin, which is more liberal, it was a dirty word, okay? Evangelical was not a fun word. So here's what was interesting. From time to time, this happened numerous times, people would show up at church and they would say, yeah, I just decided I wanted to start exploring like life with God. What would that look like? Who is God? I wanna try and examine that. And we say, well, how did you how did you choose this church? How did you wind up here? And they would say, well, I looked through like the, you know, I looked online and I saw that you were evangelical free. And I thought that's exactly where I want to be, a church free of evangelicals. (laughs) They heard it like fat free, right? Now, if you're not in on that joke, why everyone's laughing, it's because we are evangelicals. We are here and we were there. Now they had something in mind that was totally false about what that meant, right? Right? Uh, which I'm not gonna dive into today, but we would then share with them, well, hey, we, we need to break something to you. We actually are evangelicals and you can knock them over with a feather. They'd be like, what? You seem so normal. We would say, well, here's what evangelical means and here's what you may have thought it meant, you know, and it is, have you had a good experience here? And they're like, oh man, yeah, we felt loved and we've loved the teaching and it's been really helpful and, you know, one thing and the other. But I always thought it was so interesting. You know what that taught me is that when people hear free, Everybody hears something different, right? Depending on like what's your background, you may hear it like, hey, by the way, we're all laughing. If you're in here today and you're like, I came because I thought this place was free of evangelicals, it's okay. We're so glad that you're here. That may be your background, may be helping you kind of go, oh, I thought of it like fat free. But let me just give you a couple other examples that might fit you. So just imagine for a second, like if you're politically conservative, when you think of freedom, the first thing that might come to mind is freedom from government overreach that's where you might think first. You're like, yeah, that's what freedom is. If you're politically liberal, you might hear freedom from unjust laws or unjust systems. That might be where your mind goes when you hear the word freedom or being free. If you're cheap, the first thing that comes to mind is getting something for nothing. That might be what comes to mind. You're like, hey, you know, it's free 99. That's my favorite price, All right? If you're young and you hear free, you might think, Freedom to not have to do what my parents tell me to do. That might be the first thing that comes to mind. I can actually decide to have sugary cereal as opposed to the healthy stuff or stay up past my bedtime or do whatever it is that I want to do. If you're old, you might hear freedom to do something without pain. You might hear that. If you're a student, you might hear not being in debt. Freedom from having to owe a lot of money, right? Right? All those things are types of freedom, would you agree? And depending on what your background is or what your stage of life is or your life situation, you might hear something different. Now, here's what I would tell you. All of those things have something to do with freedom. All those things can be expressions of freedom, but they're not what God truly means in his word when he tells us what freedom is. That freedom is much less about freedom from restrictions and much more about being free to be and do what God made you to be and do. That's how I want you to think about freedom. That's how Paul's gonna argue, Galatians, uh, in Galatians, that's how he's gonna argue about what it means to be free. And quite often in church, we think about, okay, well, the world teaches freedom to just do whatever we want. And there is something to that idea of being free from restrictions. There are times where restrictions have to be removed in order for us to be and do what God made us to be and do. But when the scriptures think about freedom, that's how they think first. And I wanna give you three expressions of freedom that are gonna become deeply important that Paul's gonna to talk to us about. And I'm gonna try and walk you through the book of Galatians so you got kind of the big picture before we dive in and go verse by verse starting next week. Everybody with me, is that all right? All right, fantastic. All right, so three kinds of freedoms. I'm give you a little bit of background after I give you these three kinds. So here's the three freedoms. You'll see them in your sermon notes there. Kids, by the way, if you're taking notes, if you fill in the blank, we got a coupon for a free cupcake for you, all right? So that's for you. I don't need to find any 45-year-olds turning in coupons for cupcakes, all right? Not for you. So the three kinds of freedom that Galatians is gonna talk about. When it says, what does it mean to truly be free? I mean, if you want to be free, and I've yet to meet the person that goes, you know what I prefer? I prefer to be enslaved rather than being free. I haven't found that person yet. Freedom is gonna be freedom from death, freedom from the law, and freedom from sin. Freedom from death, freedom from the law, freedom from sin. I'm gonna explain each one of those to you, but let's do a little background. Let's set ourselves up well when it comes to the book of Galatians. A couple things to know. Galatians is unique as as an epistle, as one of the letters in the New Testament. One of the reasons it's unique is that there aren't many, that aren't written to a specific church. So the letter to the Ephesian church is to a church in a city called Ephesus. The letter to the Corinthian church is to a church in the city of Corinth. Galatia is a region in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. So if you're looking at a map, you see Turkey. Look in the Eastern part of that country. That's where the region of Galatia was there are about five churches in that region that Paul is writing to. So this is a letter that's gonna make a circuit. It's gonna go through this whole region. So as he's writing to them, here's kind of the basic blueprint that you need to know. It's a church that as Paul preached the gospel, if you read through the book of Acts, you read through Acts 13, 14, 15, you're gonna see where he's among these churches. And he's sharing the gospel with people. They come to believe that Jesus crucified and resurrected can make you right with God. If you have faith, in Jesus crucified and resurrected, that you can be made right with God. They believed that. But then after Paul leaves and moves on, somebody else comes in behind him and they begin to teach that you don't just need to believe in Jesus, you need to believe in Jesus and keep the Old Testament law. All right, now let me, let's pause for a second. Let's talk about the Old Testament law because you may not be familiar with it. Some of you probably are, some of you are probably not. The so Old Testament law is most famously sort of summed up in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Everybody familiar with the Ten Commandments? Most of us are somewhat familiar, right? Don't steal, don't kill, don't bear false witness, don't commit adultery, those sorts of things. But that law is much broader than that. That's just sort of a, a, a sort of a grand summary or a pinnacle of it, if you will. Now, here's what Paul, as he, as, well, sorry, not Paul. Here's what the, the people coming into the region of Galatia and teaching false things said. He said, look, at one point, God picked this nation. He made a nation called Israel through Abraham. And then through Moses, he gave them a law. He gave them a set of regulations and rules. And when Jesus comes, the question becomes, okay, do we, in order to be right with God, Do we need to believe in Jesus and also keep that law, those sets of rules, or did that law have a specific purpose for a point in time and now Jesus is taking the story forward? And Paul's argument is that you do not need to obey the law in order to be right with God. But there are aspects of the law because it reveals the holiness of God that we do keep. We don't want to murder. Would we all agree with that? We keep that not in order to, earn being right with God, but because we've been made right with God. So the law still serves a purpose, but it's not a saving purpose. And so there's this battle between whether the law is there as part of our salvation or whether Jesus has fulfilled that requirement of the law. And now salvation is by faith alone. And Paul is going to land squarely on the, it is by faith alone. Now, one of the interesting things about Galatians, is it is probably the book that comes across as the angriest of Paul's letters. Now, I want you to think about that because if you've read through your New Testament, uh, Corinthians is probably the best example. People are living crazy lives in the city of Corinth. I mean, wild, crazy lives, not the kind of lives that they're supposed to live as Christ followers. And Paul does correct, he even rebukes, but there is apparently a little more gentleness. Do you know who he reserves his strongest sort of anger towards. It's people who are self-righteous. It's people who are living like they've got it all together and you need to add the law to Jesus and his big argument throughout the book of Galatians is gonna be, you are not free in the way that you think you're free. If you try to add anything to Jesus, you don't have Jesus. It's not just that you're trying to add on Jesus plus the law, Jesus plus my good behavior, Jesus plus my family background, Jesus plus my, you fill in the blank. He's saying it's not just that you are sort of misled, it's that you are denying Jesus himself by trying to add anything to him. And therefore you are not free. And so he wants to describe to them what it looks like to be free. So, That's a little bit of background. Now let's dive into those three kinds of freedom, okay? What's the first one I said, freedom from? Death, all right, fantastic, good. Let's talk about that for a moment. What do we mean when we say being free from death, all right? Well, the first two chapters of Galatians start out, and they are going to start with a, why should we even listen to you about freedom, Paul? Like, why does it matter? And Paul's argument is going to be, because I am an apostle. The people talking to you are not apostles. I am an apostle. So he's going to argue for his authority in chapters one and the beginning of chapter two before we get to the next couple of chapters where he's going to really tackle this freedom idea head on. Now, here's why that's important for us to note, okay, friends? Because we believe in a thing called apostolic authority. Now, here's what that means there are some places that you will hear the teaching that apostles still exist, that is false. Apostles were the 12 men that Jesus picked out to be his followers, Paul coming in as the 12th after Judas goes out uh, and is no longer part of that equation as one of his disciples. And they had a unique authority in the history of Christianity. They had authority to declare what was right doctrine and what was not. They had authority for their uh, writings to be recorded as God-breathed Scripture You and I do not possess that authority and no one can inhabit that office of apostle ever again. Everybody follow? So here's where that comes down to us. We wanna ask the question, well, how do we know who has the authority to tell us what's right and what's wrong, how to be free and what it means to be enslaved? The answer is the writings of the apostles handed down to us in God-breathed scripture. Apostolic authority comes into play for us and we believe in it. We don't believe in the repetition of that office continuing to exist today because it teaches us that no church, no group of people, no higher authority in a church setting can say to us, my command is equivalent with scripture. Our history, our tradition is equivalent, equal in authority to scripture. Scripture stands alone as authoritative. Church doctrine, church church teaching only has authority where it submits to the written word of God. If I get up here and declare to you a new law, everybody, you need to do this. Everybody needs to stand on their head five times a day or you cannot be made right with God. And I'm your pastor. And I say that it must be so. Why do you know that my command does not have authority? Because it's not in line with God's word. And God's written word trumps any position of church authority. You with me? That's what he's gonna argue for. Like, you, you need to listen to me. I have an apostolic calling on my life. That's what he's doing in chapter one, beginning of chapter two. Then he's gonna get into what it means to be free from death. That's the first kind of freedom that he's gonna talk about. So here's the argument. Imagine with me for a second that, how many of you have uh, your homeowners? Who's a homeowner? Okay, I am so excited for you if you have paid off your mortgage. I have not paid off my mortgage, all right? Let's imagine that I said to you, as of today, your mortgage is done. You are free from your mortgage. Wouldn't that be pretty awesome? You're like, yes, that's amazing. I mean, the discretionary income, the opportunity that comes from that, right? So, hey, your mortgage, by the way, you can just tell your mortgage company, Pastor Trent, I don't have to pay this anymore. I'm sure they'll respect that, all right? Imagine that mortgage is principal interest. I say, you are free from it. Now imagine that I said, you're free from it, but 30 years from now, on a certain day, you're gonna owe all of that principal and interest. You're gonna have to pay the entire thing. You don't have to pay now, but in 30 years, you'll pay. Does that feel as good? Why not? Because you weren't really free. You weren't free from that debt. It was just delayed. When Paul is thinking about freedom, the first thing he says, you're not free unless you're free in this life, and after this life. You're not free until you're free forever. For someone to say, you're free from your debt only to have to pay it later, you weren't ever actually free. So imagine now that you spent your entire life saying, I'm free, I'm free to do what I want, I'm free to be who I want, I'm free to go where I want. But then on the day of your death, you had to pay a debt that you couldn't pay. Were you ever free? Paul's going to say, you may think you're free, but you are not free until you're free from the penalty of your sin that you will pay upon your death. Eternal separation from God himself. There is no true freedom until that is dealt with. And trying to be free in any other way, trying to deal with any other ways that you're limited, even if they're things that are rightly to be removed from our lives is like dealing with a sore throat when cancer is ravaging your body. There is no freedom apart from freedom from death. That's Paul's first argument. Look with me at Galatians 2, 16 through 19. Let me show you this now. As he gets through chapter two, we come to these words. He says in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified. And that word there can also be translated set free. All right? It can be translated set free. You can also think of it as being legally right with God, like in a courtroom, all right? So he says, we know that a person is not justified, is not set free by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified or set free by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be set free. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now there's a lot of complexity in there. We're gonna get to it in the weeks ahead, but here's the part I want you to hear, all right? So really get this now. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might, what's the next word there, church? Live to God. In other words, Paul is saying, until you are free from the penalty that the law brings into your life, until you're free from the penalty of sin, which is death, you are not alive to God. You are not truly free. Are we making sense so far? That's the first kind of freedom you need. I hope that you can see that. If you're not a so some of you might be here today and you might hold a, what we call a materialistic worldview, which is to say you don't believe in anything immaterial, right? There's, there is no soul, there is no spirit. There is only sort of the, the, the physical mechanisms that we see. Most people don't subscribe to that. Most people, even if, if you're not a Christian, uh, if you hold some other worldview, Still, I find it's rare to find someone who's truly a materialist. And so let me say this. If you're not a materialist, then you acknowledge that there is something that is unseen that is real. There is such a thing as a spirit or a soul. There is such thing as unseen, intangible realities. And if that's the case, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, doesn't it make sense that there is a type of freedom which must take place in the inner person forever in order for freedom here and now to have any true meaning. Does that make sense? So I would argue, even if you're not a Christian, if you are not a materialist, if you're not someone who thinks there's no such thing as spiritual realities, then it would make sense that you can't have freedom now unless you have freedom forever beyond this life. So that's the first kind of freedom that Paul talks about. Now, let's go to the second kind of freedom, all right? Let's go to the second kind of freedom freedom from the law. And let's think about this for a moment. Now, this is where Paul's gonna pick up in chapters three and four. So the book kind of divides neatly into two chapter sections, right? So the first two chapters are about authority, who has it, who can tell us what it means to be free. The second two are gonna be about freedom from the law. And the last two, five and six, are gonna be about freedom from sin. We'll come to that in just a moment. So I asked my friends, uh, Troy and Carly, where are you? Come on up, welcome them with me. They're gonna help me out here. Yeah, you can clap for (laughs) him. Troy's a detective, Carly is his daughter, and they're gonna help me demonstrate what we mean when we think about freedom from the law. So Carly, your dad's dream to handcuff you behind your back, what he's always wanted to do. You didn't dress for jail today. All right, so we've got the cuffs on. Would you say you feel a bit restricted? Yeah, do you feel free? No. She said no in case she heard her. So this was what it might be like to be restricted or not free. Now, Carly, here's the deal, right? You've got those handcuffs on you. So you are not in fact free. But what if, what if I could give you the key? Would you like that? Sure, okay, so Troy, give her the key. So Troy's got the key to the cuffs. It's in her hands. So go ahead and free yourself. What is the problem? How long do you think Carly would need? A while. Yeah, exactly. She, now, pause. I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. Your hands aren't made to get around to the hole. She can't even get to the hole on those cuffs. Now, Troy, why don't you go ahead and take the key from her and uh, help your daughter out there. And voila. In just a matter of seconds. Well done. Hey, thank Troy and Carly for me. Thank you, guys. When Paul talks about freedom from the law, here's what he's saying. You're not truly free if you have to free yourself. You cannot be truly free if you have to free yourself. Here's the interesting thing. She had the key. She had what she needed to be free. Why couldn't she be free? Because she had to do it herself. How long did it take once someone else came to free her? Not long at all, did it? That's exactly what Paul is saying. He's like the people that are coming in to trick the Galatians. And he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's a really somewhat nice way to say you idiots. You dummies. Kids, do not say those words to your parents. But Paul says them, so I guess it's okay for me. I mean, I'm in trouble, sorry, move on. He says, who's bewitched you? In other words, what he's saying is these people have come in and they've said, Jesus, yes, believe in him, but also there are these rules. And for them, it was particularly this law of circumcision that they needed to be circumcised, which is just emblematic for the whole law. He's like, look, if you think you have to keep one part, you need to keep it all. And he's saying, you cannot do that. And what he's gonna argue is the purpose of the law was never to save you. It was always to show you you needed a savior. And so even though, yes, you have the key, Jesus, and you know, if you have to unlock the door yourself, if you have to unlock the cuffs yourself, you can never do it. So don't add the law, don't add the rules on top of belief. The second you do that, you have negated belief. That's what his argument's gonna be in chapters three. Look at chapter three, verse 10 and 11. Here's a way to summarize it. And again, the great danger here is I'm just trying to give you the big picture I don't want to steal the thunder of when we get to this chapter, all right? So let me just give you what he says in verse 10 and 11. Chapter three, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified, again, set free. No one is set free before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. So I hope it helps you see that visible demonstration. I hope it helps you see what Paul is getting at. He's saying, you cannot free yourself and you are not truly free if you believe that you have to do it yourself. If you have to earn it, if you have to to perform for it, you're not free. Now, here's what's so interesting. It's like I said, Paul saves some of his most vehement rebukes for people who are self-righteous. And can I just tell you that as someone who grew up in church, I recognize this bent in myself. And I have to ask the Lord to examine my heart on a regular basis because here's why this is so important. Not just because you can't deliver yourself and so you will fail if you slip into this way of thinking, but because it's so subtle. It's easy to see if I'm out living a life that absolutely renounces the person of Jesus and wants nothing to do with him. It's easy for me to know that I am doing that. But self-righteousness sneaks in and causes you to believe that you're really believing in Jesus when in functionally what you're doing is you're saying, I'm saving myself through all my moral goodness. So can I give you a few indicators that questions I ask myself? How do I know when I am slipping into this belief of self-righteousness, self-justification, rather than saying Jesus and only Jesus? Let me give you a couple. Maybe you'll find them useful. So I find if my moral behavior, which is right and good, there are ways that it's good for a Christian to live, yes? Yes. It's right and good to live that way. But if my moral behavior, my moral obedience doesn't cause my heart to love Jesus more, one of the questions I ask myself regularly is, I may have done a good thing. Do I love myself more as a result of that? Or do I love him more as a result of that? You know you can do right and good things and it doesn't lead to more love for Jesus in your heart. That's a dangerous place to be. If you find yourself more pleased with yourself rather than more pleased with him, that may be an indicator that self-righteousness and self-justification are taking hold of your heart. If I have trouble seeing, admitting, and asking for forgiveness when I am at fault, then self-righteousness might be beginning to take hold of my heart. Can I say that again? If I have trouble seeing when I'm wrong, admitting when I'm wrong, and asking for forgiveness. I've said this before, but I'm gonna keep harping on it. In particular, dads and moms, you're not off the hook, okay? Okay. But dads in particular, the number of young people that I have sat with over the years of my ministry and asked, did you ever hear your dad say I was wrong and ask for forgiveness? The percentage is astronomical. It's shocking how many kids have never heard their father say that. And I don't know why it seems to us men like that is somehow strength. It is not strength. It is is weakness to be unable to admit when you have failed, you are flawed and you need forgiveness. Do your kids need you to be that stubborn man who can't admit when he's wrong or do they need to see a demonstration of humility? Do they need to see a man who knows he is desperate for the power of God and the spirit of God to deliver him from his sin? They need the latter, not the former men in particular, say I was wrong, ask for forgiveness when that's the case. Do you know why that's an indicator of self-righteousness? Because if I have to justify myself, I will never admit when I'm wrong because it's admitting I'm not right with God. And if it rests on me, I can't acknowledge that. But if it rests on the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then I'm quick to confess my sins. I'm quick to ask for forgiveness. Does that make sense? Don't be scared. Your kids, it will bear fruit in their life. Now, moms, again, I said, you're not off the hook here because there are plenty of marriages where, man, I've seen husbands who are leading well and saying, I was wrong, please forgive me. And wives who have a hard time admitting where they were wrong. They're good at pointing out their husband's flaws, but not so good at admitting, you know what, I was wrong on that one. I don't, if you can't see where you're wrong, then there's a danger of your heart being in that place of self-justification. A couple more that I ask myself. If I have a tremendous, if I have tremendous emotional ups and downs, depending on how well I'm performing my disciplines. So if I'm disciplined, I feel really high. If I've lacked discipline, I feel really low. That is often an indicator that I'm basing my, my sense of being right with God on my performance, not on the grace of Jesus. If I feel superior to others who aren't as disciplined as me, have you felt that before? It turns into a spiritual competition. I'm better at having my quiet time. I'm better at praying. I do more Fasting. God, don't you see how superior I am in my disciplines? And if you find that subtly, and you gotta be so thoughtful about this because no one, you don't say this out loud. It sneaks in. You don't go, yep, I'm better than they are. It's just that subtle, quick thought that pops in. It's that subtle feeling of, well, you know, maybe, you know, ooh, I feel kind of feel superior. It just, and sometimes it's just, it's just that quick. When that pops in, put it to death. Say there, but for the grace of God, go I. Say, oh, you saved me. You've redeemed me. It's all you. It's not me. That act of obedience, that discipline that I just performed, I know it's right and good, but you're the one who gave me the strength to do it. It's all you. Return to gratefulness. Return to thankfulness. Keep doing the right. Yes. Don't chuck the right fall upon the power of God. If I feel indignant because God blesses or uses someone else, have you felt that before? Where God chooses to pour a blessing out on someone else and you think, why not me? How come you didn't use me? How come you didn't give me that thing that I've wanted, but you gave it to them? That's an indicator that you believe God owes you something. And you think he owes you something because you think you justify yourself. Can you see how subtle all these things are? They are little ways that legalism and law-based sense of righteousness slips in on us. And the last one I'll say, um, I already said it, if if I think God owes me anything, and that leads to a lack of thankfulness in my heart. Okay, so those those are the first two. Freedom from death. In order to be free, you gotta be free forever, not just for a little while, right? Freedom from the law. In order to be free, you gotta be free from having to do it yourself. And then the last one is, freedom from sin. So here's what Paul's gonna do. There's gonna be this argument uh, that, the, that his opponents would make. He's gonna kind of cut them off the pass, all right? Because this happens, it's the same thing that happens in Romans, the book of Romans, Romans 5 and 6. Because Paul is saying, you are made right with God by grace through faith, not by your own performance, not by keeping the rules. And of course, the legalistic heart, what's the immediate response to that? If you tell people that they're going to go crazy and live however they want, because there's not gonna be anything to put them in check. There's not gonna be rules to hold them in. And Paul's gonna say, you're completely wrong. And in chapters five and six, here's what he's gonna say. He's gonna say, I anticipate that objection. Let me tell you why that's not gonna happen. Because the spirit of God will keep them in the purposes of God. You walk in righteousness by the spirit, not by following a set of rules. And so it's gonna be a master's class in chapters five and six on what it means to walk in the spirit, what it means to keep in step with the spirit. Instead of going, here's my list of rules, I gotta check them all off. How do I turn to the spirit and say, spirit guide me, spirit lead me, show me what to do, and he will lead you into all righteousness. And it will be a freedom, relation-based, walking out of righteousness, rather than an enslavement to a set of rules. Now, when he comes to this idea of being free from our sin, let me show you something that I think encapsulates it pretty well. So watch this with me. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow for you. Have it now, or you can wait. Okay? I'll be back. Stay in the chair, okay? You need them. So you can applaud that. So when we think about freedom from sin, here's what Paul is saying. Have you ever felt like something you desire? You know, it's not right and good, but it's like that marshmallow in front of you and it's just too hard to resist. It's just, it just feels like, so to me, I love the kids are like, well, I'll just take a little piece or I'll just kind of lick it. The kid, the twins, when he's like banging his head on the desk, that's pretty good. And then the kid, the second he has permission, when he Shoves both of them in his mouth. We've all felt like that before. We have a desire for something yeah, and the marshmallow is a marshmallow, but we know when we have those desires for things that aren't right. They're not good. And yet they feel just just like that. Like, oh, it's right there in front of me. I just want it so bad. And what Paul's gonna say is you're not truly free. When he's talking about freedom, you're not truly free until you're free from your own worst desires. Until God sets you free from having to follow your own desires. So often some of you may think this way, like, well, freedom means freedom to just do whatever I want. But can I ask you a question? Have you ever followed what you wanted, followed your desires, and it led you to a place that was not great? Yeah, we, we'd all raise our hand on that. We're like, oh my goodness. Yeah, my desi- your desires are not necessarily in and of yourself something that can be trusted to always lead you to the right place. And so you need freedom from death, the penalty of sin. You need freedom from the law having to earn your own freedom. And you need freedom from your own sinful desires. You need freedom internally as well as externally. See, freedom isn't just about removing outward restrictions. Freedom is about removing inward compulsions. And that's what Paul's gonna argue in Galatians chapter five and six. He's gonna say, there's a kind of freedom that comes with the spirit of God to where the very thing that you used to desire, he will change and transform. If you will, he'll say, keep in step with the spirit. So not only is that the response to the objection of the people who say, we need the rules so we don't go crazy, so we don't live in a way we shouldn't live. Not only is it the right response to them, it's also for the Galatians to say, yes, you do need to overcome the desires that you have in your flesh. You do need to overcome those, but there's a way to overcome them and it's through the spirit of God. So those are the kind of three freedoms we're gonna talk about. And throughout the scriptures, whenever freedom is the subject, Those are the ideas that you'll find again and again is in order to be truly free. You need a freedom that lasts forever, freedom from death. You need a freedom that you don't have to perform yourself, but is performed for you, brought about for you. And you need a freedom from the desires that lead you down the wrong pathway. And God is able to give those. So I hope you'll come along for the journey with us now over the next two semesters, as we think about what it means to truly be free in Christ Jesus as we study the book of Galatians. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray that you would guide us in our understanding of your word. We thank you that you have given us your authoritative word so that we might know your will and your ways. We thank you that Paul reminds us, Lord, your servant, that we can only be set free by grace, not by the, the works of the law, not by the words of the law. So we thank you that you have seen fit to show us our sin through the law so that we might turn to you, Jesus, and know that we need you to unlock those cuffs on us. we pray that you would do that for those for whom it has not been done yet, that they would turn to you and ask you to take the cuffs off. We pray, Lord Jesus, for those of us for whom you've taken those off, that we wouldn't try to put them back on and put ourselves free again. Thank you for your power, your glory, your goodness. Now receive the praises of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.